Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 119, Diana Bibb, The Modest Impact of the Modern Confrontation Clause. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On our podcast today is Diana Bibb, a recent graduate of William and Mary Law School. Now, I have to say, I was particularly excited for my interview with Diana today because I have something of a passion for, for diving into evidence scholarship from up-and-coming evidence scholars or even from, from law students. Of course, some of our more loyal, uh, excited utterance listeners, if you will, will remember back to the summer of 2018 and the summer of 2019 when I used to actually have a podcast series, a summer series, where I would interview law students about their, their law review notes if those law review notes were evidence-focused. And what I found during those summer series podcasts um, was that oftentimes, Evidence scholarship from recent graduates or evidence scholarship even from law students, it's often so incisive as they approach a doctrinal space with fresh eyes, not encumbered by kind of an entrenched way of thinking, but instead free to still recognize a doctrinal space for what it is. Without question, I think that Diana embodies that exact perspective. Her recent paper, which she co-authored with Excited Utterance veteran and William & Mary Law professor Jeff Bellin, is entitled The Modest Impact of the Modern Confrontation Clause. The article, which was recently published in the Tennessee Law Review, brings that fresh perspective to the confrontation doctrinal space. And what Diana recognizes is that although Crawford v. Washington and Michigan v. Bryant and the move away from Ohio v. Roberts is often thought of as this revolutionary inflection point in confrontation doctrine, the practical impact of Crawford v. Washington and the Crawford Revolution, both from a theoretical and an empirical perspective, is actually quite modest. Did Crawford v. Washington have a significant impact? That's the question that I discuss with Diana today. Well, Diana, welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm so excited to be here to talk about this paper today. Well, your paper is fantastic. I really enjoyed reading it. It's on a hot topic, right? Confrontation and hearsay and how the two kind of worked in tandem. What kind of led you to this topic? Why were you focusing in the paper in great detail, both from a theoretical perspective and an empirical perspective, on confrontation and hearsay? Well, I mean, as we're going to get into, hearsay and confrontation clause have this very long affair where they wind up very mixed into each other. And there was this big break in Crawford where Justice Scalia came up with this whole new rule. And then in all of the years after Crawford, you see the court trying to whittle down what the rule that they created actually meant. and it becomes a mess. So we were really interested to see how the lower courts were trying to apply what the instructions that the Supreme Court had given them and with some very mixed results. Well, I think I'm going to pick up right where you left off because many of our listeners are going to recognize that the Supreme Court hasn't exactly been clear and consistent 
when it comes to the confrontation clause. I think that's fair to say. So if you would, Diana, remind our listeners who might not be as familiar here, how has confrontation doctrine changed over the last few decades? So this is my favorite thing to talk about. And I think the best place to start is always with the Supreme Court's decision in 1980 in Ohio v. Roberts, where the court says that if you have an out-of-court statement that's admitted through a firmly rooted hearsay exception, there will not be a confrontation clause problem. Or my other fun thing to say is that if the statements show an adequate indicia of reliability, then you're all set. Usually what this meant at the time was the federal rules already required you in order to get hearsay admitted to show that they were reliable. So as long as you could check the hearsay box, you could also check the confrontation box and go on your way. So then in 2004, Justice Scalia pens the now very important opinion, Crawford, in which Justice Scalia breaks from the Ohio v. Roberts standard and says, no, 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 we need to redo this. The confrontation clause is not about reliability. What we really mean when we want the confrontation clause is we want people to have to come to court and be subject to cross-examination. So in Crawford, Justice Scalia tries to set out this simple rule. And the rule is the confrontation clause bars testimonial hearsay unless the declarant is unavailable and the defendant had a prior opportunity of cross-examination. And that's one very long sentence. At the end of Crawford, they were like, you know what, this all means a lot. Testimonial is a super important word in that sentence, but we're going to wait to define that. We're going to see what comes up in the future. After Crawford, we see the court taking a series of other cases to try to flesh out what testimonial means, which is where we get cases like Davis v. Washington, Hammond v. Indiana, Michigan v. Bryant, and then the most recent one until a few days ago that dealt with the Confrontation Clause was Ohio v. Clark in 2015. In these cases, we see the court trying to give guidance on what it means for hearsay to be testimonial. What comes out of it is a very narrow definition of what testimonial hearsay is. The easiest way to put it is that testimonial hearsay are statements that were made at the time with the purpose of proving a fact later at trial. So, for example, things that are excluded from testimonial are statements that were made to address an ongoing emergency, which is what we have in Davis v. Washington. It's a long history, and we wind up with this very narrow rule at the end of it. So certainly not kind of a straight road, right? The confrontation doctrine has been uh, all over the place, I think it's safe to say. But I think one of the most interesting aspects of your paper is that you're not just looking at confrontation doctrine, but you're also going to the hearsay rule enshrined in the federal rules of evidence in Rule 801, 802, of course, and and the exceptions thereafter. Why should the hearsay rule be considered in tandem with the confrontation clause? Why is it so important to see how those two work together and interlink? Well, if we were talking about the standard under Roberts, it would seem very obvious since The rule under Roberts was if it fell within a firmly rooted hearsay exception, then you were okay, which under that standard, the hearsay rules are very important. And you would think after Justice Scalia's opinion in Crawford that you wouldn't need to see this overlap with the hearsay rules. But in all of those subsequent court opinions that I just talked about, one of which is Michigan v. Bryant, which stands out in my mind, you see the court almost sliding back into its reliability analysis. The thing that always stuck out for me was Justice Sotomayor's opinion in Michigan v. Bryant. There's a section of the opinion where she mentions that hearsay rules are relevant to determine whether or not statements are testimonial. 
And in that same opinion, there's another footnote that describes how many exceptions within their definition describe the purpose of those statements, which is why the hearsay rules are so important, because when we're considering whether statements are testimonial, we're looking at those statements' purposes, just like the hearsay rules. So let's then track this relationship between hearsay and confrontation through the different confrontation eras that you identify. So let's start with Ohio v. Roberts, the era where confrontation was centered around reliability. How did the hearsay rule work hand in glove with confrontation during the Ohio v. Roberts era? Was confrontation just redundant as an exclusionary rule in the Ohio v. Roberts era? I would say yes. The way I thought about it was under the Ohio v. Roberts regime, it was pretty much you're checking the same box for hearsay as you would for the confrontation clause. And what about under Crawford, though? Did Crawford change that landscape, at least as a theoretical matter? Did it decouple hearsay from confrontation in a material way? I would say theoretically, yes, they're supposed to be two separate things. The rule of evidence would be about the reliability of the statements, whereas the confrontation clause would be about the formality of the statements. And the more formal a statement you have, the more likely you are to want that person to come into court and be subject to cross-examination. I think what's really interesting about your paper, though, is that you don't leave it at a theoretical assessment of, well, here's how the hearsay rule and the confrontation clause are supposed to work together under Crawford. What you do instead is you actually empirically test this. You go out and look at court opinions and you look at how courts are approaching the hearsay rule, how they're approaching the confrontation clause in this purportedly new era of Crawford. So let's kind of focus on that aspect of the piece. How does your paper try to study the effects of Crawford and particularly the effects of Crawford on this relationship between hearsay and confrontation? So we wanted the paper to reflect the practicalities of the Supreme Court decisions that fleshed out what testimonial hearsay was. So at the time that we were doing our research, the most recent case was Ohio v. Clark, which came out in 2015. And we were doing our research in 2020. So we figured five years of dealing with the doctrine after Ohio v. Clark that should give us a good sample of cases. So we read all of the federal appellate cases from 2015 after Ohio v. Clark up until the end of 2020. And then we didn't stop there. We were like, you know, appellate courts, they're great at applying this stuff. Let's see what is happening on the ground. Let's look at the district courts. So then we looked at all of the published cases from the federal district courts And then we took a sample of unpublished cases from the district courts. And we wanted to look at which hearsay rule is being invoked. Is there a confrontation clause violation? And then we didn't want to stop there because stopping there could give you skewed results of being like, wow, look at all these violations without looking at the end result of the case. So we also wanted to see if whether or not the confrontation clause violation resulted in a reversal in the case. Fantastic. Let's say wealth of data, and I think it's perhaps the most important data set on the relationship between hearsay and confrontation that we have after the Crawford decision. So let's dive in here for a second. Let's see the results that you found. First question, in this Crawford era that we now live in, which hearsay exceptions are now generating the most confrontation clause challenges? And what I mean by that is, When a statement is admitted through this particular hearsay exception, whether it's 801 D2A, 801 D2E, 8032, excited utterance, whatever it might be, 
which ones then go on to generate the most confrontation clause challenges? So if we're just focusing on statements that come within a hearsay exception, there were four that we saw that were fairly consistent. We're not saying huge numbers, but more numbers than were just a one-off case. The number one exception that generated a challenge was 801D2E, which is statements by a co-conspirator. And this was definitely the most by far that fell within the rules, which is strange if you think about it, because by definition, statements by a co-conspirator are made in furtherance of a conspiracy. And it's hard to imagine how you're making statements in furtherance of your conspiracy while also with the purpose of proving a fact later at trial, unless that is the most ineffective conspiracy ever. The second most rule that had challenges was excited utterance. And for me, this one was not as surprising as co-conspirator statements, because if you look back at the cases that the Supreme Court used to define what testimonial was like Washington v. Davis and Hammond v. Indiana, those were cases in which the rule that the statements were admitted under was the excited utterance rule. So that one wasn't too surprising to me. And then the last two were the business records exception and the public records exception, which were more surprising because they aren't the hot button rules. They're not the exciting ones that you would think of. And let me follow up on those four categories and ask, were they also the categories where we saw the most successful confrontation challenges or did those differ? The most successful exception was actually the public records exception, which is strange, but it wound up being more of a result of courts getting the hearsay analysis wrong more so than getting a confrontation analysis wrong. For the other exceptions, they really didn't generate a lot of violations. I'm pretty sure the co-conspirator statements in the appellate courts, at least, did not generate a single violation. Excited utterance, it can be kind of hard because sometimes a court will be unwilling to say whether or not a statement was actually a violation. They'll take the more gray approach with, even if it is a violation, it was a harmless error. But For most violations that fell within a rule, it was the public records exception. So I want to circle back then to a claim that you made earlier about the Ohio v. Roberts era of confrontation. And you had mentioned that during Ohio v. Roberts, the confrontation clause was somewhat redundant, right? Because the hearsay rule was excluding statements that would ultimately be excluded by the confrontation clause. And when a statement was admissible under a hearsay exception during that era, it typically didn't fall afoul of of Ohio v. Roberts's test for confrontation. So fast forwarding now to the confrontation era, do we still have a redundant confrontation clause? Is the confrontation clause doing meaningful work outside of the work already accomplished by the hearsay rule? Or alternatively, do we still have that same form of redundancy? I would say we have more redundancy than not, which is a very non-committal way of saying the confrontation clause seems to be doing a lot of work that the hearsay rules also do. But I, I wouldn't say it's completely redundant because you still have cases where you have a statement being admitted under the rule, but generating a confrontation clause violation. And those kinds of cases are usually cases with excited utterance. There's actually one fairly good example in the paper, which is a case that comes out of Texas. And 
an assault victim calls 911. She's giving the operator all this information. She even tells the operator her assailant's license plate. And that statement was admissible under the excited utterance rule, but it wound up being a confrontation clause violation because the court considered that they weren't trying to address an ongoing emergency. All the concerns of danger had already passed. So we see the confrontation clause working more in places where the rules of evidence have really been stretched to the max. They're not necessarily breaking the hearsay rules. That's still an excited utterance. She was very upset about the assault. But it's at the very outer perimeters of what's acceptable under that rule, which is where we see the confrontation clause making lines of what is acceptable and what is not. Awesome. So with those kind of findings then out on the table, let's talk about your paper's implications if we can. Now I'm going to ask one pessimistic question and one more optimistic question. But first we have to go to the pessimistic question. So Diana, to what degree do your findings demonstrate that Crawford really wasn't a defendant-friendly opinion. It didn't give rise to a defendant-friendly revolution in the confrontation space. Does your paper kind of support that pessimistic view? Sadly, I think it does. I say sadly because I think Justice Scalia, when he wrote Crawford, really believed that he was making a break from Ohio v. Roberts. But I think his fears that he expresses in his concurring opinions in the later cases are true because with such a narrow definition of what testimonial is, we don't really see the confrontation clause doing much work outside of the hearsay rules. And I think this goes back to what I was saying before about rules like the co-conspirators statements. A lot of the rules within their definitions talk about what the purposes of those statements are like co-conspirator is in furtherance of the conspiracy. Well, that's not going to be for proof of a fact later at trial. Another is the hearsay rule for medical treatment, making statements to your doctor about how your wounds were caused. That's for treatment purposes. That's not going to be for proof later at trial. Another is the business records exception to a lot of courts had said that business records, their purposes are administrative. Therefore, the business to keep track of their own records, they're not for proof later at trial. So it's almost like the hearsay rules already incorporate what the Supreme Court has defined as testimonial. Then what do we have to be optimistic about amid all of this redundancy and perhaps the fact that the confrontation clause, according to your findings, perhaps isn't doing the most work relative to what we thought it might be capable of accomplishing for defendants? Do we have any room for optimism here? I think we do. I think this goes back to stretching the rules of evidence very thinly. I think the confrontation clause is doing work where courts are more willing to allow questionable statements in under rules that aren't necessarily a violation of the rules, but probably aren't the best statements to be admitted. I will also say it's not a horrible thing that the confrontation clause overlaps with the hearsay rules. Because a surprising aspect of our paper was that a lot of the times where we found confrontation clause violations, the attorneys and the court just got the hearsay analysis completely wrong. 10 out of the 33 cases that we found a violation, it was errors in hearsay analysis. So I also feel like 
it's disappointing that the confrontation clause doesn't do work independently of hearsay, but it's a backstop to prevent courts from allowing erroneous hearsay analysis to continue. Diana, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed both our discussion today and your paper. I have one final question for you, and that is what's next for the literature here? Is there any type of paper that you think would help us shed additional light on this issue? Well, I'm excited to see what lower courts do with the Supreme Court's most recent decision in Hemfield v. New York, where Justice Sotomayor takes aim at New York's door opening rule because there were quite a few cases in our study that we categorized as invited error. And I'm certain that a few of them were cases in which the defendant opened the door to statements that probably shouldn't have been admitted under the confrontation clause. Well, Diana, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed my conversation with Diana today precisely for the reason that I mentioned at the top of the show. And that is that she is bringing a new, fresh set of eyes, a kind of unencumbered perspective to the Confrontation Clause. Now, the Confrontation Clause is often held out, as Diana said today, as this critically important defendant-friendly tool that is central to our criminal justice system. But If we put those kind of labels to the side for a second, and we just consider the practical and even the theoretical effect of the Confrontation Clause, what is it actually accomplishing? And I think it's here that Diana and Jeff just did an excellent job in their article of surveying the post-Crawford legal landscape and giving us all a picture of how the hearsay rule and how the Confrontation Clause are working hand-in-glove to serve an exclusionary function at trial. And perhaps, as they show, perhaps Crawford wasn't this defendant-friendly revolution that we perhaps hoped for back in 2003. Nevertheless, as Diana mentioned, it has important functions. The Confrontation Clause serves as a redundant safeguard, ensuring accurate uh, admissibility determinations. The Confrontation Clause does serve a legitimating function ensuring that a defendant is afforded a fair proceeding, fair process, before any judgment is rendered. And ultimately, I think that Diana's and Jeff's survey of the post-Crawford landscape just shows us the potential of the Confrontation Clause. Depending on the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Sixth Amendment, the Confrontation Clause can be given a very limited role at trial or a very expansive one. And in the years ahead, this is certainly something to watch. The current composition of the court, particularly after the likely confirmation of Judge Jackson, is going to be quite different than it was when Crawford was decided. By my count, and I'm doing some mental math here, I think we'll have seven new justices um, relative to the court that decided Crawford v. Washington. And we'll have four new justices relative to the court that issued the most recent major confrontation decision in Williams v. Illinois. I think the court would do well to take stock of Diana's and Jeff's research and think deeply about the nuanced yet profound way that the Confrontation Clause influences trials. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided 
by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope you'll join us next time when we explore another piece in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>